there's a quote uh, from St. Augustine that I like, but I recognize that it's also potentially dangerous, so I have to be careful how I use it. And the quote is this. He says, love and do what you will. Love and do what you will. And like all truths, it's very simple and very profound, and that's why I like it. But also, like all truths, it can be misused if it's taken out of context, and that's why I know that it's dangerous. Now, the context in which St. Augustine says, love and do what you will, is a sermon that he preaches on a passage in 1 John that says, God is love. God is love. And so in that context, we understand that when St. Augustine says to love and do what you will, when he tells us to love, he's telling us to be like God. Right? To be like God. He's telling us that we should desire what God desires, that we should want what God wants. And if that's true, if that's what we're doing, then yes, we can safely do as we will, because our will will be united with God's will. And we'll only desire to do that which is good and holy. But without that context, it would be very easy to take St. Augustine's statement to mean it's okay to do whatever you want as long as you do it with loving intentions, with kind intentions. And that's something that St. Augustine never would have agreed with. Never would have agreed with. But that's the most widely held view of morality today, isn't it? I mean, we live in an age of moral relativism that says there's really no such thing as objective good or objective evil, and all that matters is our intentions, right? Are we doing things with a kind heart, with good intentions? And that's another case of taking something that's true out of context, because it is true that our intentions are important. We need to have good intentions. Right? We're supposed to. Even good acts can be considered bad if we do them with evil intentions, but our intention isn't all that matters. All the good intentions in the world can't make an evil act into something that's good. Because we can always come up with a good reason for whatever evil thing it is that we want to do. All right, that's why God doesn't say, you know, just, just do whatever feels right to you. You know, do whatever feels right to you. Because we're experts at justifying our sins in our own mind. Everyone who's ever committed any sin had a very good reason for doing it. <laughs> it felt right at the time, right? So God doesn't do that. He Instead, he gives us commandments, not to restrict us from doing evil, because we have to remember, he leaves us free to disobey his commandments. We're still free to do evil. But he gives us the commandments to help us to know what is good, to help us know what's truly good. And the commandments are good because they come from the mind of God, who is all good. And because the commandments teach us how to follow God's will, they teach us to love, because God's will is love. But the commandments are these external things, right? They're outside of us. They're something that God gives us outside of ourselves. But if we love as God loves... And if we think as God thinks, we won't need that kind of external guide because we'll, we'll have internalized the lessons of the commandments. And so that's what St. Augustine was getting at when he said, love 
and do what you will. And something very similar is going on in our second reading today from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, when St. Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, St. Paul is no moral relativist any more than St. Augustine is, and so he's not saying that we can do whatever we like as long as we have affectionate feelings towards each other. That would be a misunderstanding of St. Paul, and it would be a misunderstanding of love. So far from being an excuse to disregard the law, love fulfills the law, is what St. Paul teaches us. Love fulfills the law because the law exists to teach us how to love. All of those things that are forbidden by the commandments that St. Paul lists out, murder and adultery and covetousness and all the rest, those things are incompatible with love. If you love your neighbor, you cannot murder your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you can't commit adultery. If you love your neighbor, you can't lie to him. You can't steal from him and all these other things. And if these things that are forbidden by the commandments are incompatible with love, what does that mean? What does that tell us? It tells us that love is an objective reality. Love is an objective reality. It's not just something that we've invented on our own. It's something that exists outside of us, and we have to conform ourselves to it if we wish to learn it. Now imagine, I'll give you an example. Imagine if you want to learn how to play piano and your instructor sits you down in front of the keyboard and says, just hit whatever keys feel right to you. Right? Just do whatever you want. Now your instructor is, you know, probably thinks that, that he or she is liberating you to express yourself. Right? They're making you free to express yourself. But they're not making you free to make music. They're making you free to make noise but they're not freeing you to make music, right? To learn to make music, you have to learn the scales, and you have to practice the scales over and over and over again until you're sick of them. You have to learn the music theory behind it, and that might seem limiting at first, especially when you're just learning. You want to play Beethoven, but you're stuck here playing the scales. But it's that kind of discipline that will make you free to make music. Or if someone gives you a, a blank canvas and a bunch of paint and says, just do whatever you want, do whatever you want, right? Express yourself. They're not making you free to make art. They're making you free to make a mess, right? I've got a five-year-old. I know what happens when you do that, <laughs> you know? No, to make art, you have to learn the skill and you have to learn the theory, right? And it's because there's a rationality behind these things. There's an order to them. There's an order to things like music and art, just like there is to science and to mathematics or to carpentry or to engineering or to anything else like that that we apply ourselves to because our world is governed by order. It's because things have meaning. And if we want to master them, we have to discover that order and that meaning. And we're no different. We're no different we have an order and we have a meaning and God's commandments are there to help us discover those things so that we can rightly order our behavior towards each other and our behavior towards God. The commandments are like the musical scales that we have to learn if we want to make music, only they're not teaching us to make music, they're teaching us to love. 
And that's why St. Paul says that love fulfills the law. Because if we master the art of love, we will have learned all the lessons that the law is there to teach us, and we won't need it anymore. But few of us have mastered love that way. A few have. We call them saints. The rest of us are works in progress. And so we rely on the commandments as we continue to learn more and more what it means to love each other and to love God. And what does it mean to love, right? We use that word to mean all kinds of different things these days, right? It has a broad meaning. But when we use the word love in a Christian context, as I'm using it here and as St. Paul uses it, the word in Latin is caritas, or in Greek it's agape, and it refers to a specific type of love. It means the free self-gift of one person to another. And that's so much more than just affection or kindness. Those things are good. We need them. But the love that's mentioned here is that free self-gift of one person to another. And that's why St. John can write that God is love because free self-gift of one person to another describes the life of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each giving themselves freely and fully to the others, the lover, the beloved, and the love between them. God is that. He is love. And that love of God is so abundant and it's so gratuitous that he even creates other persons outside of himself to love and to be loved. That's us. So that's our purpose. It's what we were made for. And that's why God gives us freedom. It's why he gives us the commandments, but it's also why he leaves us free to disobey the commandments. So we might wonder about that. If it's so important that we follow God's commandments, why didn't God make things so that we didn't have a choice? Why didn't he just make us so that we always did good and always did right? Wouldn't that be easier? I feel that way a lot of days. Wouldn't it just be easier, Lord, if if you didn't give me this thing called free will? But he allows us to break the commandments because love requires freedom. It's part of that objective reality of love. Love is only love if it's free. If it's not freely given, it's not love. It's something else. And since God made us to love, that means he made us to be free. So the one thing he will never do is violate our free will. He will not force himself on us. He beckons us. He invites us. He encourages us. He admonishes us, but he's never going to force us to act against our will. Because to be free to love God, we also have to be free to reject him. Our yes to God only has meaning because there's such a thing as no. We can only get to heaven because there's such a thing as hell. Meditate on that for a while. This impacts our relationship with God, and it also impacts how we relate to each other. Because loving someone means that we have to respect their freedom. And that's especially true in our work of evangelization, as we seek to to reach out to family and friends and evangelize our culture, and when we're called to admonish the sinner, to admonish one another. And we see an example of this when God calls upon Ezekiel to admonish Israel, for its infidelity to the covenant. 
God calls on Ezekiel. It's his job to warn Israel of the consequences of their sins and what will happen if they don't repent. And God will hold Ezekiel accountable if he fails to do that. It's his job to admonish them. But it's not his job to convert them. It's not his job to make them repent. They have to repent on their own freely. And God will hold them accountable if they don't do that, right? But it has to be their choice. It has to be their choice. The same thing is true in our gospel reading. When Jesus tells the disciples, if someone sins against you, right, if someone has broken communion with you or with the church by their sin, they are to be rebuked, but also invited back. And he gives us very practical means to to do this. He gives us steps we are to take. First, go and talk to them individually, privately, on their own. Why? If they've sinned against you, it's nobody else's business, right? Out of love for that person, don't make their sin public. Talk to them about it. That's how we avoid the sin of gossip. How many of us, and I'm guilty of this, I think we all are, when someone does something that bothers you, when someone sins against you, you go and you tell everybody except that person. Right? And what good does that do them? Not at all. Except it now damages their reputation to everybody that you've talked to. So Jesus' example helps us steer clear of that. No, go talk to that person on their own. And if they don't listen to you, well, then go get two or three other people, right? Trusted people, go get some friends, and then go talk to them. And if they don't listen to them, then tell it to the church. They're to be given every opportunity to repent and come back into the fold, to come back into communion, because that's what we want. But if they refuse to be reconciled, then we are to treat them like a Gentile. That means as an outsider. Not because we don't love them, not because we don't like them anymore, or we want to cut them off or anything like that. It's because that's what they've chosen. That's not what we want for them. Right? Because we love them. We want them to be united with us. But also because we love them, we have to respect their decision not to be if that's what they choose. But I think we also need to be careful when we read these passages that we, we tend to think of ourselves only as Ezekiel or only as the disciples that are calling other people to repentance and to reconciliation. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that very often, maybe we're the ones being admonished. Maybe we're the ones that are being called to repentance and to reconciliation. So maybe even now there's something in your life that has broken your communion with God or with the church or with neighbors. And maybe God is calling you to repentance today through the words of his prophets. Maybe he's calling you to reconciliation today through the ministry of the church. As the psalm says, if today you hear God's voice, harden not your heart. God is calling to us. He's always calling to us. But he will never coerce us. We have to accept that invitation. He invites us. He implores us. But he never forces. He allows us to walk away from him if that's what we choose. If that's our final choice, he respects that. Hell is God's final act of mercy for the unrepentant sinner. But that's not what God wants for us. He respects our no, but he desires our yes. He desires our yes. He made us to love 
to love him and to love one another. And his commandments that guide us, give us daily opportunities to do just that. To say yes to his invitation as we learn more and more deeply the lessons of love.